Welcome to the Sunday Times Politics Weekly, where we explore the big political issues of the moment. I'm Mike Siluma, and thanks for joining us. Last week, African leaders, led by President Cyril Ramaphosa, undertook a mediation mission to Ukraine and Russia in what is the latest global bid to end the war in Ukraine. That mission received a mixed reaction, with some deriding it as President Ramaphosa's ploy to change negative international perceptions about South Africa's non-aligned stance. Others, however, supported the mission, arguing that Africa needed to do something about a war that was affecting it negatively. The question is, was the African mission all worth it? Could it have an impact on the course of the Ukrainian war? Joining us on the Politics Weekly to answer these and other questions is Everest Benera, who is Professor of African Politics in the Department of Political Sciences at the University of South Africa. He specializes in part on the study of peacemaking. You asked Mr. Ramaphosa to sit down first. I understand you. Now I warn you. I need to put on my big girl panties and keep going. You can't have two speakers standing at the same time. Security services of the Republic of South Africa, you may intervene. There's been several attempts on my life. Lower that hand. It's not the president is accused of that serious crimes. I know I'm going to become the president of this country. You, you are going to be the president. Of I am going to be the president of South Africa. Of South Africa. Of South Africa. There's no of South Africa. I will cancel race. Corrupt people do not eat alone. They have a spider web. And now suspend the proceedings. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Prof. Thank you very much, and um, I am honoured to to come here and share my views with you on this very important issue. Yes. Now, even before the mission got underway, uh, it had many detractors. You know, uh, one of the questions was why would uh, the belligerents listen to South Africa? Why would uh, Russia listen to to South Africa or listen to Africa? And why would uh, uh, Ukraine uh, listen to, to you know to South Africa and to Africa? Um, why was that? What happens is that when a war breaks out, normally it signifies the end of what. I can call civility. All civil relations break down. The law breaks down. The truth becomes the first casualty. We begin to have perspectives and not the truth. And what then begins to happen when you have perspectives and not the truth is that we then tend to have a binary view of the war, its impact and everything. There are those that are support the that support the left side, those that support the right side. And in most cases, if you say you are neutral or you are pro-peace, you are branded as somebody who is not sympathetic with the group that the mainstream normally goes with. Of course, I'm speaking in tongues. What do I mean here? South Africa and Africa are not trusted as credible brokers because Africa has for once refused to openly side with Russia or Ukraine. Of course, there were those votes in the United Nations General Assembly where some countries such as Eritrea voted openly against the war. There are a lot of countries that abstained from voting, and those votes must be reread as neutrality. Mm. So South Africa is at a point where we can say its neutrality rubbed the global powers the wrong way. 
And 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 just 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 looking at uh, President Ramaphosa himself, he described the intervention as historic. Do you agree? Yes, 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 I agree. And it is historic at many levels. Hitherto, Africa has been a problem to be solved. 60 to 80% of all discussions at the United Nations are about Africa. 70% of the problems that are addressed at the United Nations different forums and committees are African problems. But for once, Africa has shown that indeed, it is capable of not being a problem to be solved, but Africa can present itself as a global problem solver. We can now talk about African problems for global, sorry, African solutions for global problems. Whether this initiative is going to be successful or not, that is something that history will judge. The fact that African leaders put together a delegation that went and met President Vladimir Zelensky in Kiev, and then proceeded to go and meet President Vladimir Putin in um, St. Petersburg. I think that on itself, that access to the two presidents is a historic moment because none of them so far, none of the other initiatives, whether by the Indonesians, had achieved such a rate of success. There was almost an obsession with uh, passing judgment on the on the initiative, you know, uh, whether it was a success or failure. You know, you know, almost it, it was like, a, as you were saying earlier, a binary kind of thing to say, you know, was it was it a success or was it a failure? You know, uh, how should we assess a mission like this? You know, is is there ever a silver bullet to ending a war? To say this is this was the there was one meeting and the meeting ended the war. Any war. Every war is is sui generis. It's different from the other war. There are no two wars that are similar. And every war has got a different course. Hence, it is inevitable that every war will end in a completely different way. However, there are some common factors that we can pick that exist towards the peroration of a war. Normally, there is a peace treaty that is negotiated. But before I get to the issue of the peace treaty, let me retreat a little bit back and take you to this. To this, um, I'm looking for the right way here for this for this proclivity of humanity to always try to establish causality and causation, to always try to ascertain impact. Impact is very difficult to measure, let alone to ascertain. I can ask you, what is the impact of your podcast on South Africa? How do you measure it? Is listenership a good measure of the impact of a podcast? What if some people listen and then they forget? So the only way in which we can judge the success of a peace mission is if indeed the 10 points that the Africans put together were considered. Of course, they will be amended, they will be chopping, there will be additions, there will be subtractions, but we cannot begin to talk about whether the peace mission was impactful or not. Because broadly, there are two ways in which this impact can be measured. Mm -hmm. The first one is outcomes, and the second one is processes. 
I discourage us from taking an outcomes-based approach because the outcomes are very far. They are a moving target. Whereas if we take a process-based evaluation of impact, we can say, did the process achieve what it wanted to achieve, which was to meet the two presidents and put forward their proposal. I would say, yes, from a processes perspective, the mission was impactful. Mm, mm. And and uh, th- l- let us look at, you said that uh, South Africa rubbed the, the West, in a sense, the wrong way, you know, by taking... A, a, a non-aligned position, or what it put, you know uh, argues is a non-aligned uh, position. But outside of that, is there a case for a position of non-alignment? Well, you know what? What? How? How? How is it supposed to work? A position of non-alignment, especially in a in a in a polarized world such as we live in now. The best way to express a position of non-alignment in a war is to base it on your national interest. To say as South Africa, as Africa, what is our national interest? And is our national interest aligned to either one of the two? Do we do we tend to lose more if we go with Ukraine or we go with Russia? Or do we tend to lose if we go with both of them? Or we would rather step back and say, as the war begins, takes its course. We are going to remain open to both parties so that should negotiation time begin, we will be very credible because we never openly sided with any of the two sides. Of course, others will go on to reclassify the notion of neutrality, active neutrality, pro-Russian neutrality, national interest-based neutrality, and so on and so on. My view is that the best position is the one which South Africa took, to say, of course, we are allies with Russia when it comes to BRICS. We are allies with Ukraine because most of our comrades that were in the former Soviet Union were actually in the Ukrainian Republic of the Soviet Union. Most mm. of the grain that we get comes from Ukraine. So we are we are active because we are brotherly and sisterly to both belligerents. In my view, that is the best way of keeping your neutrality. And when it comes to multilateral fora, such as the General Assembly, the best way is to abstain from voting. You will ask the Americans, they will tell you that, yes, we have nuclear weapons in Eastern Europe, Mm. but we will not tell you where they are stationed because our nuclear doctrine says that we will maintain what is known as strategic ambiguity, just to keep you Mm. guessing whether the weapons are there or not. If that is what they are doing as NATO, if that is their doctrine of strategic ambiguity, so us as Africa, we are also having neutral ambiguity, if we may coin a term here. And specifically on Ukraine, you know, there's been a lot of pressure on South Africa to to take a stand. You know, in other words, either to to support Ukraine itself or to support the NATO uh, initiative, you know, in 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 Europe, or at best to stay completely neutral and not associate uh, with, with Russia. Can South Africa withstand that pressure? Do you think the pressure is too much? The pressure is very difficult to withstand, but South Africa and Africa can withstand that pressure. Africa is now awake. Africa is now 
aware of how the North Atlantic Treaty Organization operates. We haven't forgotten how they accosted Africa and South Africa into voting against that resolution that imposed a no-fly zone over Libya, supposedly. Mm. Yet it was going to result in the assassination of a sitting African head of state, the brother leader, the Kenya Muammar Gaddafi. In a way, as Africa, we feel bad in that somehow we may be complicit in the assassination of one of our own because we sided with this resolution that we innocently assumed was mm. a no-fly zone. So that has awakened Africa to this instrumentalization of international norms, international principles, and indeed to a greater extent, international institutions such as the International Criminal Court. Because a lot of atrocities were committed. Just take George Bush and Iraq. Mm. Madeleine Albright was asked, did those millions of children in Iraq deserve to die? And she said, it is regrettable. They were collateral damage. Mm. Suddenly, the West is now awake about the Russia, the Ukrainian children that are in that are taken to Russia. When it comes to the assassination of a journalist, uh, uh, Abu Akhle in Israel, they write a letter, they 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 are so soft, and and Israel is very clear. None of our soldiers will be taken to the International Criminal Court. Now, if an Israeli soldier is not accorded by their state mm. a chance to go and prove their innocence at the International Criminal Court, how can a whole sitting head of state, the one with the largest number of nuclear weapons, avail themselves? be arrested in South Africa. So so the double standards, this, this, this ambiguous application of international law, international norms, and international principles is very problematic, and it makes Africa hesitant to support mm. some of these initiatives. Just look at the refugees leaving Ukraine to Poland. They were welcomed with music, piano, Biltong, mineral water. Mm. Look at the migrants, the Africans. So if it is a, an African, they are migrants. If it is a European, they are refugees. The abuse and the instrumentalization of norms and principles. So Africa is saying, hang on, before we support you, we want to be sure of what is mm. going on yeah, here. Yeah. Because our history teaches you that we should not trust you. Mm. Mm. And and just, just to talk about the negotiations themselves, you know, before we move on to the continent, you know, and South Africa's role there. Um, as things stand now, I mean, you, you in part, you specialize in the study of peacemaking, you know. And as things stand now, you know, there's one view that says that uh, uh, negotiations can only happen if Moscow leaves, withdraws from Ukrainian territory or or when when Kyiv guarantees that it won't join NATO. In in other words, it remains uh, neutral. What's your view? My view is that, you know, you cannot even begin to talk about ending a conflict and negotiating before that conflict is ripe. And what mm. do I mean when I say that a conflict is ripe? A conflict becomes ripe when there is no clear winner. As of now, the Russian Federation thinks that it is going to win. Ukraine thinks that it is going to win. Ukraine is packed by a very powerful NATO. Russia has got nuclear weapons. So each one of them thinks that they are going to win. So the war is going to be protracted. Mm. Secondly, a conflict becomes ripe when both belligerents are tired of the war. 
Ukraine is not yet tired. Its backers are still pumping in money. They are still pumping in weapons. Russia is not yet tired. Its economy, even though it was put under a lot of sanctions, is still is still pushing to a point where some would say they were surprised by the resilience of the Russian um, economy because it should have crumbled given the amount of sanctions that were thrown at it. Mm. So the two sides are far apart from each other. I do not see Russia abandoning the territories that it acquired, such as the Donbass, Crimea, and so on and so on. I also do not see Ukraine abandoning its call to join NATO. So, so how is the war going to end? There was talk over the weekend from an influential Russian policymaker that maybe, maybe, maybe it's time for the Russian Federation to begin to throw in the use of its tactical nuclear weapons. So this was just talk over mm. the weekend. And by the way, President Joe Biden picked up this and he commented on it and he said, this is now madness. We cannot be talking about nuclear weapons, either tactical or strategic. You know, I've heard people talk about the world stumbling into war, you know, ending up in war by, by accident or by mistake when it wasn't intending to, you know, to do so. Could there be potential here for a mistake to happen that could precipitate like um, an even greater conflagration. There could be an accident. You are reminding me of the Bay of Pigs, you know, when when General Nikita Khrushchev took his nuclear weapons and then he placed them in Cuba. And Fidel Castro was asking for the court to say, give me the court. I want to send one across the waters. Mm. So Ra- Russia has got its nuclear weapons now stationed in Belarus. And NATO has got this policy of strategic ambiguity. The implication is that right now in Europe, there are a lot of nuclear weapons. And when you have nuclear weapons, one thing that you do not want to have is an accident. Today, the impact of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster is still there. Mm. The impact of Hiroshima and Nagasaki is still there. I think China must step in Mm. and try to quell things. Unfortunately, we thought the visit by Blinken would thaw the waters, but hardly before Blinken had arrived back home, President Biden was at it again, brandishing President GGP as a dictator. So, so, so you get you get a feeling that there are some among us that are genuinely interested in a catastrophe, mm. that are genuinely interested in the war to go on at whatever means. Mm. Let's come back home now and look at uh, South Africa uh, on the continent. Does South Africa still have the the diplomatic gravitas? You know, I mean, for example, previously it was invited to to, to G7 meetings, and this time in Japan it wasn't. Has its influence shifted? There are a number of reasons that have resulted in the perceived loss of gravitas and moral standing for South Africa in the international arena. Firstly, at home, and secondly, away. Obviously, away from home, the main reason why we lost our gravitas as South Africa is the war in Ukraine. The fact that South Africa chose to remain neutral did not go well, especially in Western Europe and the United States. Mm. 
So that has resulted in us losing a number of friends. And I don't think the AGOA, this is the African Growth with, with Opportunity Act. It's a piece of legislation that allows goods from preferred countries to get into the United States duty-free, I don't think it is going to end well for us in those negotiations. Then back home in Africa, the elephant in the room is how migrants, both legal and illegal, Mm. are dealt with in South Africa, formally and informally. There appears to be lack of a political will, lack of a political appetite, to take a decisive stance on human movement. Mm. What do I mean by this? The Zimbabwe exemption permit, it has mutated and it has metamorphosized over the years. I think it started in 2008. Surely a decision has to be made whether not to renew it or to make some dispensation. You cannot continue renewing a special dispensation. There is need to treat this not as a legal issue, mm. but as a political issue. And therein comes the, the lack of the political will to solve this issue of human movement. Everybody in the Republic must be documented. And I don't think it's a huge mission to document people that are in the Republic. People have got bank accounts. People mm. are going to school. So it's a matter of collecting information that is already there. Mm. So these are some of the machinations that tend to diminish our standing as South Africa in Africa, mm. then making us lose our moral ground. But this has been long time coming. You throw in a bit of state capture, executive impunity and corruption, then our voice is eroded. Mm, mm, mm. Now, b- before we conclude, Prof, I, I want us to come to the to the other uh, challenge facing facing South Africa, uh, the, the impending... Uh, BRICS summit with, uh, of course, you know, with the the question of whether uh, Vladimir Putin will or will not come and what, how South Africa should deal with that, you know, should he insist on coming? Um, what, what would you say is the best way of, of addressing this? You know, let me, let me prefix my response by making reference to the 22 Afghans that the United States brought all the way from, from Afghanistan to South Africa for them to seek refuge. Oh, yeah, I remember Crossing this, yeah. all these countries and leaving all their allies coming to South Africa and saying, no, South Africa, host these refugees while we vet them to ascertain their suitability to stay in the United States. These are people that are being pursued by the Taliban. And the Taliban are not the most, in, uh, are not the most kind guys. If you are harboring, they are perceived criminals. Now, you then fast forward to the BRICS summit, and we are being expected to effect an arrest, again I repeat this, to the president of a country with the most nuclear weapons, over 5,000 of them. Why can't they go there and arrest him themselves? Why do they want us to to use an African um, proverb to to bail the cat? Mm. You see, South Africa's constitution and laws are being used against South Africa. And this is what we call coloniality, that our constitution was negotiated in good faith. Mm. Now our constitution is now being used against us. Surely they cannot expect South Africa to act against its national interest and arrest President Vladimir Putin. We, We do not have 
that cloud. Only countries such as the United States can do that, not South Africa. So for me, the BRICS summit, if it is to go on without increasing the level of tension and controversy, must go on in a neutral venue, another venue like China, Mozambique, wherever, or President Putin can suddenly develop a call, then he will address the meeting via Zoom <laughs> or some other online platform. Because South Africa cannot continue to take the flag. Imagine yeah, yeah. If, if, if President Putin comes, then he is not arrested, then South Africa is sanctioned. South Africa is not only South Africa. Zimbabwe owes its existence right now economically to South Africa. So is Mozambique. The region is functioning on the South African economy, and we can't afford South Africa to fail today. It will be a catastrophe for the mm, whole region. Mm, mm, mm. Now, just, just lastly, uh, uh, Prof, the, the African mission, should it still continue? This was just the beginning. The African mission must continue. The African mission must go and speak to the underwriters of the war. The African mission must go to Beijing. It must go to Washington. It must continue until there is peace mm. in Europe. Because this war has got casualties, not only in Eastern Europe, but the world over. Those people that are starving in the Horn of Africa, those people that are dying of hunger in Sudan and everywhere, even the war in Sudan is an extension of that war in Eastern Europe. So peace in Europe will actually be good for human security, not only in Africa, but globally. Mm, mm, mm. Just as an aside, you, you mentioned the underwriters of the war. What, who are they and why would anyone want to underwrite a war? The war ceased to be the war about the protection of Ukraine or the defense of Ukraine, but the defeat of Russia. There are those in Western Europe that want Russia to be defeated. That is the first set of the underwriters of the war. Mm. The second ones, and these are the elephant in the room, it is the arms manufacturers in there and those that are selling those arms of war. When this war has ended, there is going to be need for a type of a Marshall Plan to resuscitate the economy of Ukraine. Because my prediction is that after the war has ended, Ukraine will be like a dump site of scrap metal, all forms of ammunition lying over. And those that are underwriting the war, the arms manufacturers and the Western European countries on one hand. And on the other hand, those that are supporting or sympathetic to the Russian Federation, such as China, because China is interested in a weak United States and a weakened China, so that it then emerges as the leading global power. So there are many dynamics there, and there are many national interests that are playing mm. out. Mm. But again, show me the person who is selling the arms, and I will show you the person who can end the war. What What is China's role in all of this? <laughs> China is very sympathetic to China, sorry, to Russia, not only because of their involvement in BRICS, because ordinarily China would want to side with those that are not on the side of the West. So it's almost like uh, your enemy's enemy is also my, is no longer my friend. So, so, so China is looking for an opportunity to expand its belt and rail initiative in a way that will position it not only as the leading economy on, uh, on the, in the southern hemisphere, but also in the West. And Russia 
is providing it with an opportunity as that gateway into Europe via Eastern Europe. This is why the relationship between China and Ukraine. And this is why we will see that they are now talking about one of their currencies, preferably the one being the reserve currency for the BRICS. So there is a lot of mutual interest that is going on, emanating from and rooted in Western policies that are anti-Russia and anti-China. They are both anti-Russia and anti-China, thereby bringing Russia and China together. Oh, okay, okay. Well, that, that's all the time we have on the Sunday Times Politics Weekly for this week's edition. And uh, we have our guest to thank, uh, Professor Everest Benera, uh, who teaches politics in the Department of Political Sciences at uh, the University of South Africa, specializing in part in the study of peacemaking. Uh, we appreciate your time, Prof. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Mike Siluma. Until next time, do stay safe, stay blessed, and let's do good for our country.